So we are in the series in Thrive, I think you know that, and Kevin has taken us into this brief look at some of what are classically known as the spiritual disciplines. We're calling them spiritual practices. They are different kinds of disciplines and practices that followers of Jesus have engaged with or entered into as part of their ongoing life with God for a very long time. You can trace them all throughout history and see people doing these things throughout the generations. And in fact, Jesus himself, as we're taking a cue from this passage in which he was in the wilderness, Jesus himself practiced many of these disciplines for those 40 days in the wilderness. And so in this series on Thrive, we're wondering what can we learn from that? What could we begin to encounter with God in our ongoing relationship with him? Should we engage in some of these ways? And so last week, Kevin took us through a bit of the practice of fasting, which can help reveal those places in our lives when we're experiencing kind of fear or lack in, in wondering about what the future can hold. A fasting can be a really important practice in the midst of that. Because I don't know about you, but for me, when I'm experiencing fear and lack in my life, I often end up looking towards the things of this world to, to give me some sense of peace or sustenance to the soul. And not that those things are bad, like eating or relationships or a job, but it's pretty clear that they're nothing but an illusion if we want to lean into them in order to experience a sustained kind of sense of peace and comfort in our soul. And so fasting is this wonderful invitation to sort of reorient our hearts towards the God who does bring a sustained sense of peace and wholeness to the soul. So that was last week. This week, we are heading into another spiritual practice, again, one with a lot of historical precedent and that of silence and solitude, which was demonstrated by Jesus by the sheer fact that he was willing to be led by the Spirit into the wilderness where it was going to be a time of silence and solitude. But you also see it in his life at other times, and particularly when the voices of the many are raging around him all day long with their demands and their promises and their pressures. And when, when there is sort of peak demand as he was walking through the Galilean environment, it was at those times often very confusing to the disciples because there was so much demand around him, that Jesus would escape from that and head into a time of silence and solitude with his heavenly Father in the midst of all of the voices. So that prompts kind of, I think, really early on here in the talk, a a question. As I think about my life some 2,000 years later, and I think about how many voices are out there, just as I do my day, that are kind of vying for my attention. Demands and promises, saying, come this way, do that way, starting a day at 6.30 in the morning and racing through until 11 or 12 at night in lots of different kinds of environments, whether it be work or teaching or with my kids or with relationships. The voices are pretty constant. And then, of course, I carry some weird little computer thing in my pocket that is screaming at me all day long. Phones I had growing up were on a wall. Now we carry them around and they can shout at us all day long for our attention. And it all feels so important. You know, just like the disciples with Jesus. It's so important. How can you possibly escape from that? If you ever, you ever get a text and you're in the middle of a conversation with somebody and that text suddenly becomes the most important thing in your life and you feel sort of agitated, I've got to get to the text. These voices are screaming all day long. I wonder what it might mean in the midst of that 
to just get away from that and have a bit of silence and solitude. Because there's voices all day long screaming at us, and they all seem so very important. Well, in assigning me this topic of silence and solitude, I have to say that Kevin has had a great deal of fun the past few weeks with me, seemingly endless source uh, of entertainment for him with his texts and his emails and his phone calls, where he's like, you know, Capsner, because he knows I can struggle with silence and solitude, and Capsner, can you handle this one? I know it's not in your nature to be silent, Capsner. What's it going to be like, Capsner? Are you going to fall over dead? Ha, ha, ha. It's been real funny, Kevin, hilarious. But you know, the way I figure it, actually, is that Kevin is uh, probably finally getting the opportunity to exercise a long-standing grudge that he's been nursing. It's a very long time. It stemmed from a few years ago when I was in the pulpit here, and he was down on vacation in Florida, like he is now, and being the other-centered and lead pastor he is, he sent a text on the Sunday morning to both me and to Terry Esau at that time, saying, how are things going? Praying for you, all of that sort of stuff. Well, given how Christ-like Terry and I are, we wondered how we could get him. And so we decided to text him back separately, but with the same message. And that message was that people were actually walking out of the service halfway through during the sermon because they felt what I was saying was so heretical. Something along those lines. Now, I really didn't think for a second that he would bite. Not for a second. But he must have been distracted by his typical duck hook into the left rough. And so he chomped down hook, line, and sinker. And we didn't know it, we weren't expecting it, but suddenly Terry and I were were reeling our lead pastor in. It was awesome, and we finally only let him off the hook after an appropriate time of dangling in front of us. We kind of held him up and took some photos of that. I've never had a prouder moment in ministry than that time. And I am not just confident, I'm 100% confident that he hasn't forgiven me yet for that. And part of the problem is I haven't repented yet, (laughs) have no plans to at this moment. But it's delightful, and so now he has been teasing me all week about this message. And the problem is, is there's like a little bit of truth as he's sort of poking it in and saying, you know, are you going to struggle with this one, Kapsner? To which the answer to that question is, um, I might. Just a little. Actually, I'm glad you're my friend, Kevin, and I can trust you. (laughs) And I might. Because silence and solitude doesn't come terribly easy for me anymore. I find myself uncomfortable with it. I find that sort of the waters of my soul are kind of in this constant state of motion. They're always a little bit stirred up. Even when I try to sleep and you wake up in the middle of the night and you're stirred up a little bit, it's hardly ever off. And what I've appreciated about the time of preparing for this message and for having conversations with family and with Kevin and other people and just seeing what's all there, it's kind of reawakened me to the importance of silence and solitude as something in which to engage in life. And part of it then led me to some places just in the biblical text as well that didn't seem obvious at first as I started walking through some of this. But the more I began to engage with this conversation about silence and solitude and then began thinking about where we stand in this place of God's great redemptive story that is ongoing. And and we sit here in this cold January morning, still part of that story. When I began thinking about all of those sorts of things, the importance of silence and solitude took on an entirely different feature 
that was bigger than just something about the waters of my soul, that that was important, began to see something more. And so for a few minutes, just like to take you through a bit of that journey into the text, it's probably not going to seem obvious at first about why we're going where we're going, and that's okay. Just try to hang with that if you can. I'm going to hope by the end of a few minutes that it is obvious. But as I said, there's this sense in which if we can anchor ourselves in the story of God's ongoing redemptive reality in this world, we can then see, I think, more clearly that silence and solitude isn't just good for us. It is that, but it's something that becomes critical if we're going to participate in his ongoing redemptive plan. So with that, uh, one of the things I love about the Bible are the many patterns and themes that are woven all the way throughout the text. The Bible is not a series of 66 disconnected books that are, are independent of one another as if the authors didn't know of each other as they wrote. I think it's fairly clear that future and later authors were building on the work of those who wrote previously, often expanding on themes and ideas. And so uh, to understand the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus and the writings of Peter and James and John, the teachings of Paul and others, is that it's helpful to be steeply, uh, deep steeply in the Old Testament to understand the patterns that they would have grown up with. So for example, I love how the number 40 is used in the Bible. Now this is not some weird Da Vinci Code kind of thing. But there's 40 that appears all over the text. There's 40 days and 40 nights in the great flood of Noah. The Israelites wandered for 40 years in the desert. Many kings ruled for 40 years. The number 40 shows up 146 times throughout the text. Is that just coincidence? It was always 40. No, the writers are trying to teach us something. Even Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness is part of that deal. And if you really want to have some fun with the text, you can wonder why the 39 lashes at the cross instead of 40. It's all there. The symbolism is deep and rich and Beautiful, and we would need several bonfires to sort all of that stuff out. Word light is another example. The story begins with light, and light gets pulled through in beautiful themes all throughout the text. Hundreds of times light shows up. The word is a light into our feet, our lamp into our feet, and a light into our path. Jesus is the light of the world. We could spend a year on light. I love how in Deuteronomy 6, that God tells his people to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And then he says, do this, mark that on your forehead and on your hands. And then much later in the story, in that infamous mark of the beast in Revelation, where do we see the mark of the beast? We see the mark of the beast on the forehead and the hands. And it's a beautiful story to wonder what's all at play to be marked by the love of God or the defiance of the beast and all of how they would have understood those things. So we could go on and on with the patterns, but the one just kind of understanding that there's patterns in the text that's important for silence and solitude is to understand both the very beginning of the story and the very end of the story and how the beginning and the end of the story, a central feature of that story is that in the middle of the beautiful Garden of Eden stood this tree of life. Have you heard of the tree of life before? It's in the, in the middle of the garden. And at the beginning of the story, God creates this Garden of Eden. As I said, the tree is standing at the center. And when the the biblical text talks about life, it's not just physical life, though it includes those things. There is a sense in which the life that is represented there is sort of the beautiful, ongoing, always permeating life of God in this world, filling the world with beauty and wonder and love and joy and peace. And so the Garden of Eden is literally the Garden of Delight. 
And the life of God isn't the center of this garden, permeating out and creating a sense of wonder and joy for all who would be within kind of its range. And in that place in the garden, there's no more pain or sorrows or tears or fears, just wholeness and peace, for God created this garden to always ever expand and to multiply and be this beautiful ongoing home. But when Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, one of the consequences we see from Genesis 3 is that they and now we live in exile from the tree of life in the garden. It's part of the end of Genesis 3 where God says, I have to take them out of the garden and away from the tree of life, for I cannot strive against them forever because the core of the sin was that they rejected the life of God and decided that they could walk out the future on their own and cut God out of the equation, something I think we all do to some degree in various ways in our life. The serpent had come and basically said, God is not trustworthy. Carve it out on your own. It's a great sin as we engage with that, that we live in exile from the garden. And so Jesus says things like, wide are the paths of destruction. As you carve out your own way, there's lots of different ways in which you can walk out towards a perishing existence of destruction. But there's one. That is the pathway of life. You can only serve one master. And so that was the part of the garden we live in, exile. And of course, I think we can see it, can't we, just in looking at the headlines around us. Just as human beings, we've tried to create our own way moving forward. We see the wars and the turmoil and the suffering and disaster and death as part of the deal. We cannot sustain ourselves. Death is the great revealer of that illusion. So we live outside the garden and in exile. And the Bible kind of hammers then this exile theme all the way throughout the text, when it says things like creation is longing for what? For its release from the exile. Jesus says, you've got to understand some things. My kingdom that I'm bringing right now, that you can participate in part, is not of this world. It stands in contrast to it. Paul says that your citizenship is not of this world because you're in exile here. Your citizenship is in heaven. In Hebrews 11, it talks about these great people of faith that walked out the difficult journey of this life, but they they had their eyes set on a different kind of home. They were able to walk through the turmoil of this world and even the pain and suffering of the death they were experiencing because they saw a different and a future and a better home. They were strangers in a strange land. Jesus says, I'm preparing a home for you. So we live in exile. Of course, the good news in the exile is that God doesn't leave us alone. In this time, part of the wonder and the beauty of the good news, it happens all throughout the Old Testament. And then Jesus arrives on the scene and he says, here's the deal. John 10, 10, I've come, you lean into me. In your exile, lean into me and I've come that you would have life and have it overflowing. I'm the vine, you're the branches, connect to me, live life in the exile with me, and things like love and joy and peace will be possible in part. And Paul describes those moments of love and joy and peace as we're connected to our vine as deposits of our future inheritance that is yet to come. But for now, we've got to walk it out in exile. And at the end of the story, it's part of what I love about the biblical text, is that you see the exile in Genesis 2 and 3, but then in the very last chapter of our story, in Revelation 22, when Jesus has put everything under his feet, and there's an end to all spiritual darkness, what do we see as John writes uh, the beautiful vision of the home for which we're meant? He says, and now, in this home, there is running down the center of the city, a stream of the waters of life, and on either side of the river stands the tree of life. It's been reopened. 
the exile is over, and in that place there will be no more tears or fears or sorrow or pain. So what I'd suggest, even just in trying to understand the story of the Bible, a good place to understand is to understand the exile from the tree and where we're all spinning to, even as we sit here on this cold January morning, in God's ongoing redemptive history as we're spinning back towards a time in which the tree of life will once again be opened for all, and God will be our God, and we will be his people. Enough teaching. The point of all of that is to recognize, and I think as we tie it into silence and solitude now, to recognize that we're walking it out in the exile. And from that place, silence and solitude becomes, I think, an increasingly important practice. We're not trying to prove something to God that we're really good disciples. It becomes part of a necessary part of our lives to be able to walk it out in this exile. Because I don't know about you, but the voices from this stranger place in a strange world, the voices are many. And the demands and the pressures and the promises, as we've talked about already this morning, they rage at me all day long. (laughs) And now with this phone in my pocket and the social media platforms, and I run and run and run, and I find that the waters of my soul are always just a little bit stirred up and a little bit agitated. And from those places of stirred up waters and ongoing agitation, I might just have sharp words for people that I love, I might just have a bit of shortness of breath and can't see the way forward. Voices and voices, and it makes me just wonder. I wonder if God is still a voice in the exile. And if God is speaking in the exile, what would I need to do to hear that voice? Maybe some silence and solitude to just get out of that, because to the extent that I ever have done that sort of thing in my life, Some weird things begin to take shape. It doesn't happen all at once, and it's not some big spooky kind of thing. But sometimes just a little whisper of peace passes across the soul. It's a peace that often passes understanding. Something about a rock in which I stand in the storms of life, because what I know for sure is that the further that I go on in this journey in the exile, the harder it gets on the soul. Just last week, a very dear friend of mine passed away. He passed away a few weeks ago, and I did his funeral last week. Couldn't have been a better guy. I sat even with the song this morning. His favorite verse was, be still and know that I'm God. So that's tape running through my head right now from last week. He is nice to everyone. He had been in the hospital for the last year waiting for his heart transplant. And he finally got the news about the transplant possibility just before Christmas. Three young kids went in. The transplant, by all accounts, was successful. But his body had been so suppressed in the immune system because of all the anti-rejection drugs or the rejection drugs he had to take that it couldn't fight off the infection, and he died. Hard to explain that kind of stuff, to stand with his three daughters and say, what do you say now? God had a plan? Well, maybe. But that hardly ever brings comfort to the soul. Because the reality is, is that what happened with him just isn't right because we live in a world that's not right. Remember Kevin standing up here and giving that sort of message uh, not too long ago when the police officer had passed away being hit here on 394, and he talked about don't, don't bring God into that as if God has a plan for that. This is an exile. It doesn't mean God's not present. God is present and will be there. But to try to squeeze all sorts of life and joy and hope out of this life, and so I had to stand in front of his family and say the simple but really stark reality 
is that the world isn't as it's meant to be. And I'm really sorry for the pain. It's hard on the soul to be in the exile. And yet, somehow, we're called to, like, walk it out by faith. To keep walking it out like those people in Hebrews 11 did, anticipating the life to come. But while we are here, not to escape from it and go sing Kumbaya in the middle of Lake Minnetonka somewhere, we're supposed to be engaged in shining a light and wooing people back. For God does say that I have given the ministry of reconciliation now to you as though I am making my appeal through you, people of faith, my church. Call people back to me. Remind them of my voice, of the Father who can bring peace to the soul and healing and comfort. So in the midst of all that, it made me wonder, what would it be like to hear a voice from home? So there's two stupid examples to that. Um, first one comes, and I probably shouldn't admit this, but um, and, it's, and I'm just going to blame Hallie. She likes TV. Um, so we, uh, we watch Survivor on a regular basis. I think we've watched all 30 seasons or 36 seasons or whatever it is, most of them. Yeah, we, we, we've missed a few of them. Um, and, you know, and, and as we miss them now, we get this sort of binge-watch thing that we can do, uh, although binge-watching at our age typically means one episode and maybe 15 minutes of the next before we fall asleep. But we work through uh, the survivor story, and what I, what I love about that is uh, usually by day 39 or so, the remaining contestants have been in this foreign land, this island, for some period of time. And the game has just been sucking their soul because of all of the deception and all of the game playing, and they're trying to slog through and everything, and they don't know if they can make it. And then by day 30, there's always this reward challenge, and the host, Jeff Probst, who's like the new Dick Clark, he never gets any older, and he... And and he invites then people from home. And the loved ones show up on an island, whether it's a mother or a father or a friend or a brother. And it's always fascinating that these contestants, who are these strangers in a strange land, what happens to them when they hear this voice from home? It just takes them out of all the slog and the game for just a little bit. They, uh, some of them break down in tears. Others are like, I have renewed strength to carry forward. And almost to a contestant, when they interview them, they just say, yeah, just all sort of is able to take a breath. And now I can walk forward again in this crazy spinning game that is very much a microcosm of our lives. Just a little voice from home. Silence and solitude might do that. Another Silly example is uh, we loved living in Scotland where I uh, did my doctorate work uh, maybe 10, 12, 15 years ago. I don't know what it is now, something like that. And we, uh, we loved living there. And, and, but it was always a little odd. I mean, everything was always just a little, I mean, we thought it was English, but it wasn't really. And uh, at least the English, like American English. And so navigating our days was always a little dicey. I remember the first night we were there, I got on some bus to go to a grocery store, assuming it would take 30 minutes there and back. And it's over two hours later and I've been lost and I still haven't returned. It's pre-cell phone. We don't, she has no way of getting in touch with me. I think you thought that I got taken by the Scottish mafia. I don't even know what the Scottish Mafia is, actually. It's like, I don't know what they would do in their kilts. Um, you know, point a bagpipe at you or something. But, but you know, so it's just, I just couldn't find my way. And we used to then, we would ride buses to try to get to places. And British money, you know, there's way too many coins that the British money work with, or British work with. And so Hallie never knew what the bus fare actually was. She would just hold out her whole handful of change and ask the bus driver to take it. And I'm sure we were paying triple for every trip, you know, right? But we just didn't know. It was all so weird. And, our, and then our kids began to shift. And my daughter, Anna, who was about two at that time, she started walking around our flat and saying, 
saying, could I have a spot of tea? <laughs> like, what just happened here? You know, is it the wind shift? Is Mary Poppins showing up? And what was even more fun for us is that my son, Caleb, was uh, five then at that time. And he started developing some sort of Highland kind of Scottish brogue. And he would come home from school and be like, dude, how's your day? And then he would tell us, and we would sort of look at each other and say, I have absolutely no idea what he just said. <laughs> and so it was fun, but it was always a little bit off kilter. And then every once in a while, what would happen is we would get a call from home. And the familiarity of the voice and the place where we belonged, the place of our citizenship, loved Scotland. But I wonder what it would be like to get the voice from where we are citizens, citizens of heaven. As we slog out this world, a place in exile, voices screaming and shouting at us all day long. A couple last thoughts before we turn it over to the worship team for a brief time. Uh, Kevin sent me a note this week that the average person checks their phone some 150 times a day now. Assuming seven hours of sleep, that nuts out to about every eight minutes we're on our phone. The most prominent voice in our life, and it's not even close. And I can't remember ever walking away from my phone feeling a deep sense of abiding peace. It doesn't help me slog through this world. See, my students, too, have been teaching for 16 years or so, and prior to 2007, 2008, I maybe had one or two students that wrestled with anxiety to the point that as a prof I had to accommodate them. And then all of a sudden in 2009, 10, 11, 12, there was this massive spike to the point where the vast majority of my students are wrestling with anxiety, some of them even falling over right in front of me. And I see just the spinniness in their face, and I wondered what that was all about. And finally was able to kind of sort some things through and was able to identify, oh, 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 2007, 8 is right when Facebook started running viral. And everything changed. And I find it fascinating that uh, one of the architects of Facebook came out here recently and said, I won't let my kids be on Facebook. <laughs> we sort of knew what we were doing back then. We knew that it was going to wreak some havoc, but it was so intoxicating to bring this platform to the market. But now he won't even let his own kids be on it. I don't know about all these voices of the social media and the platform and stuff. What I do know is that I don't think there's a single one of them that will ever bring peace to the soul. But what might is a voice from our real home. What might is a voice from our Heavenly Father. As Jesus was slogging it out in this world, what did he do? Went into the wilderness, silence and solitude, and always at times when the voices were at their peak demand, I can't walk away now, you don't understand. Oh, but I will. And he got a little taste of home. So in the week ahead, uh, Kevin had emailed me, and I was grateful for just some practices. I know that we're engaged. Just It can get awkward. It's going to be awkward for me to do some of this this week as well. And just, just pick a way in which to engage in some silence and solitude. And maybe it is uh, one of his suggestions was just getting off of all social media platforms for three days. Life will end. I won't catch up. <laughs> mm. Or maybe just sit in silence and solitude for 30 minutes, which would feel like an eternity. Or maybe just uh, end all music from your car rides for three days. Pick. Just pick. I, don't, I can give you suggestions, but you all know what would be needed to just engage in some time in silence and solitude, to just listen for the voice from home, 
And it's not like, you know, God all of a sudden shows up or sends Michael and it's just like, you know, gives you this message. It's just that, that sense of just practice. I know for many of us, it's been a long time since we practiced these things. And over time, that still small voice that arrives in the storm suddenly kind of just passes across the heart. And there's something about it I can't describe. I'm not God, so I don't exactly know how it all works, but I know he's real. And I know if I don't create space for that, that it's going to be tricky to walk out life in this world because I'm going to tend to way too many voices that are going to keep stirring up the soul. So last word here is the words from D.L. Moody that I read this week that really hit me as somebody who, former pastor, preacher, he talks about times in silence and solitude. He said this. He said, you know, I can't describe it. I seldom refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. And then I love this part. He says, I can only say that as God revealed himself to me, I had such an experience of his love that I asked God to stay his hand. I went back to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I didn't present any new truths, and yet hundreds were converted. And I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me all this world. And he was a preacher, but I think it's true of all of us. Whether we're going forth into our work or our families. Whatever is happening. The sermons aren't different. Our families don't change. The work situation doesn't suddenly adjust itself. But somehow we're able to be part of it in an entirely different way. And maybe even shining a bit of light into the darkness of the exiled world.